0: Hey y'all, just wanted to give you a heads up that today's episode covers some difficult topics, including a story in the Bible that tells of sexual assault. So I wanted to tell you up front in case you're in the car listening with sensitive ears or in case you yourself aren't in a place to listen to this episode today. Check out any of the other episodes of God Knows Where and come back to this one when you're ready. Welcome to God Knows Where. I'm Brett Harris. In the last episode, we looked at how Jesus tells us to address our conflicts with one another, and today we have a story from Genesis that follows exactly none of what he tells us. It's all about some boys who take matters into their own hands and the pain they cause and their sister who gets forgotten in their quest for vengeance. It's not an easy story to talk about by any means, but I think diving into it and reading it and wrestling with it helps us see a lot of things more clearly thanks for listening to god knows where thanks for listening and following the show i had a fantastic conversation earlier this week about a really exciting project i'll be working on for god knows where to bring you later this holiday season and there's more on that to come and there'll be lots about that down the road but for now just let the hint of the holidays take you to a cooler less humid place and i hope you'll be excited and get excited for what's to come Again, thanks for listening. Leave a rating or a review wherever you're listening to the show if you haven't already. And I hope you enjoy today's episode, Male Gaze. A reading from Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the region. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the region, saw her, he seized her and lay with her by force. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the girl, and he spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl to be my wife. Now Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the cattle in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him, just as the sons of Jacob came in from the field. When they heard of it, the men were indignant and very angry, because he had committed such an outrage in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you, that you will become as we are, and every male among you will be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live among you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. And all who went out the city gate heeded Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, and all who went out of the gate of his city." On the third day, when they were still in pain, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city unawares and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword. They took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The other sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and made their prey. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should our sister be treated like a whore? I'd never remembered reading or hearing this story until I was pulling together a Bible study on difficult passages of Scripture. It was the first Bible study that I led as a pastor, and that probably explains a lot to you about why I'm now behind a mic and not a pulpit anymore. Who would choose that kind of Bible study for their first one at a church? When we read Genesis in the church, usually it's a greatest hits album, right? Creation, Flood, Abraham, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat You know, all the hits. But this one, Dinah's story, we can't ignore it fast enough. We skip right from Jacob wrestling after midnight in Genesis 32, a couple chapters earlier, to 11 of Jacob's sons throwing the 12th one, Joseph, in a hole, leaving him for dead. In my opinion, though, this story that we've read today, that we're talking about today, this story plays a pivotal role in connecting those two stories together, of bridging them together to complete the story of Genesis and to make all its vignettes make sense. And I want to make that point, that connection. I want to tie all these stories together, but I want to be careful not to do so by doing exactly what everyone in this story does and ignore Dinah. All we know about her is her name and the worst day of her life. We never hear from her. Not before, not after, not a word. This story, like so much of what we read and watch and consume, is told entirely from the male gaze. It's mansplaining 101. Shechem felt he had to have her, so he took her by force. And then he claimed to love her so that he could marry her. And Dinah's brothers found out, and they concoct a plan for revenge. And their plan is adolescent male thinking at its finest. We don't know how old these brothers are. We're told they're men, but that means they could be as young as 13. And it's safe to say, it's safe to guess that none of them, no matter what age they may be, none of them have fully formed frontal lobes, and all of them, like all adolescent males, had one part of their anatomy on the top of their minds. Generally, that manifests in certain senses of humor that may or may not be going around my house these days, or topics of conversations and silly pranks. But sadly, far too often, it manifests in what we read in this story painful experiences, unable to be undone, and choices made by men who never considered the consequences or or anyone other than themselves and their pleasure. And no one, no one comforts and cares for Dinah. We don't even get a throwaway line that tell us that the other women went and cared for her. Nothing. She's simply collateral damage in a man's world. And to add insult to injury, God is absolutely silent in this story. The same God who came to Adam and Eve when they ate from the wrong tree. The same God who saw fit to intervene and flood the earth when humanity was flailing and floundering after being given everything. The same God who found a ram to save Isaac's life on the altar, the same God who just wrestled with or sent a messenger to wrestle with Dinah's death. This God can't show up in the midst of her darkest hour or even in the wake of it and set things straight. Really? What's that about? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to make of an omnipresent God's glaring absence? We can try to explain it by pointing out that no one in the story calls on God for help, that they all ignore God, seeking their own justice and retribution. But that falls apart in light of the stories I just mentioned, where God showed up unannounced. God didn't need to be invited to show up in those stories. The best we can do is lament that God didn't show up, because so many were acting like they had it all under control. And then we're left to assume knowing what we know about God, believing what we believe about God, that God did show up to Dinah and that we just never hear about that encounter because of how and by whom the story is being told. So what are we supposed to do? How do we square this story, void of God's presence and full of men's pride, how do we square that with a God we're told is love and is there for us and will be there for us in our times of need? The answer can't be to ignore it. This story rings too true of the world we live in, a world too many of us, especially women, have experienced and continue to experience. A world where too often those who claim to be close to God, those with power and influence in religious circles, use and abuse their power as they see fit, never mind the consequences or the damage or the brokenness that they leave in their wake. I can't say that ignoring this story is the cause of these abuses of power or a source for the rampant sexual abuse plaguing at least two denominations broadly in our country and no doubt prevalent in others as well. One story alone is not responsible for the choices men make with their bodies and their power, but I can say that continuing to avoid it and what we can learn from it allows that to continue to be repeated, We can never forget what we all know and have heard. Those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it. So in order to not forget this part of our history, we have to do several things. First, we have to acknowledge it. We have to read it. And we have to admit that it was, along with many other stories like it, admitted into the canon. We have to read it. We have to read it for what it is. It's not something to be lived into, but rather something to beware of. We have to read this as a cautionary tale. We also have to do what is not done or seen in the story. We have to comfort and care for those harmed by people in positions of power, whether on the ancient plains of the Middle East or in our offices, and our schools, and our churches, wherever. We have to care for them first, and we have to center them in the stories that we tell. There's about a 99% chance that the Bible you read from is like the Bible I read from, and it has these little subheadings throughout it that earmark the various stories in any given book. The one given to this one is The Rape of Dinah, but she's centered in the title only. The story That's told is told only about the response to her being assaulted. It only covers the impacts and responses of the men around her, never her experience of what they did to her. And lastly, we have to remember that nothing, nothing happens in a vacuum, not in the Bible, not in our lives, nowhere. There are no isolated incidents. Everything is connected. I woke up to a dead battery in my car a couple weeks ago. I'd, the battery didn't die overnight, it didn't stop working as soon as I turned the car off before. When I opened up the hood, the nodes of the battery were corroded, and slowly, over time, that corrosion had spread. It had grown, and it had weakened the connections to the point where the car wouldn't start that morning. Dinah isn't raped for any other reason. Other than Shechem was raised in a world that valued a boy's desires over a woman's body. Throughout his life, he undoubtedly had heard and consumed an inferred message that confirmed this belief for him, and he acted on them. And Dinah's brothers don't respond in cunning revenge simply because they think it's a good idea or the right course of action to honor their sister. They've grown up in a family led by a father who learned to be cunning and deceitful from his mother, Rebecca, who helped him trick his brother Esau out of Esau's birthright. And who later came to marry both Rachel and Leah because of the cunning and deceit of his father-in-law, Laban. What we see here is the apple is not falling far from the tree. They are who they are, Jacob's sons are who they are and do what they do because they know it's through cunning and deceit that you can get your way in the world. What happens here is a direct result of all that has come before. And it's a direct cause of what comes after. Jacob's sole concern, as we read earlier, his sole concern is his status within this land. And his son's short-sighted, albeit loyal, pursuit of justice threatens his status and so he responds in disappointment for what they've tried to do to honor their sister and they learn that they'll never be enough for him there's nothing they could do even when they're trying to stand up for their family there's nothing they can do that will be enough for him and that if anything they do harms his status he'll be disappointed So then it can come as no surprise in the chapters that follow that when their youngest brother, Joseph, who was born to their father's favorite wife, Leah, who possibly was too young to have joined them in their plot against Shechem, when they realize that Joseph is their father's favorite son, what do they do? They return to their cunning and deceitful ways and plot this extravagant message about his death. And I'd argue that they did all of that. They go to all those lengths purely because they want Jacob's approval and attention. None of this stands alone or apart from one another. Not what happened when Jacob was going for the birthright. Not what happens to Joseph and his brothers on the road. None of it is alone. And it's this story, Dinah's story, that ties it all together that gives us clarity about where they've been and who they've been and who they are becoming. The dysfunction and the pain bound up in this story is generational and its consequences are generational. We see the same truth all around us all the time. We know studies show that trauma is generational, that its effects, the stress it produces in the body and the physiological changes that it can make inside us are difficult to overcome. Even decades later, sometimes even centuries, people continue to hold within them the trauma of their ancestors. We risk losing all the wisdom and all the reminders and insight that this story and the stories that surround it offer to us. However, painful they may be, wisdom that we need for our journey when we skip over and dismiss stories like Dinah's, when we ignore not only what happened to her, but why it happened in the first place. We can't skip over Dinah for myriad reasons, and if we don't skip over this story, maybe her story can be a reminder to us that the darkness we face can paint the clearest picture Of who we really are, of who we've been, who we have no desire to be anymore, and how to be the kind of people that break the cycles that bind us and lead us to repeat painful pasts and inflict unnecessary pain on those around us. To tell our story, to write the story of a better and brighter future we all hope for, we can't simply say Dinah's name and move on. Her story is part of our story. And we can, with God's help, write a better new chapter. But we have to know and tell her story to do so. God Knows Where is written, produced, and edited by me, Brett Harris, with music by Thomas Steinwinder and Michael Trest, and unwavering support from my wife, Elizabeth. If you like what you hear, I'd encourage you to share God Knows Where with your friends and family, and give us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. It would mean the world to me, and it'll help more people find God Knows Where. Thanks in advance for your help, and for being here, and for listening. Until next time, take these words from William Sloan Coffin with you. May God give you the grace never to sell yourself short. Grace to risk something big for something good. Grace to remember that the world is too dangerous for anything but truth and too small for anything but love. So may God take your minds and think through them, and your eyes and see through them, and your hearts and set them on fire.